Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in apologetics and scholarship today. And we've got an interesting show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking about end times, eschatology, and some aspects of it to avoid. See, a, a few months or so ago, my wife saw something on television interviewing Jonathan Kahn. I'm thinking it was on Sid Roth's show, talking about his book, The Harbinger. I've seen a friend of mine talking about it on Facebook and telling people to avoid it. And then I had a pastor that I knew growing up that when I, w- when I went to his church with my parents, and he messaged me and said, Hey, do you know anything about this book? I said, no, I don't, but apparently I need to find out about it. So I went to a library, ordered the book, got it, read it, and I was thinking, yeah, there was a lot of stuff in there that needs to be addressed. And I started wondering, maybe someone else has done a lot of this research already, and there's no need to reinvent the wheel. And fortunately, I found someone, and that someone was uh, David James of Biblical Integrity, who wrote a book, The Harbinger, Fact or Fiction. And I got in touch with him, and we started discussing, and he's agreed that he would come on my show and talk about it. So today, he's here. So, David, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thank you so much, Nick. It's uh, great to be with you. I'm glad to have an opportunity to uh, to discuss this. Uh, actually, it's turned out to be a very important book. Uh, right now, it's at about $1.6 million in sales just in that book alone. Mm-hmm. Well, if someone doesn't know David... His story is that he's got an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, which he worked in for five years. After he and his wife were saved in 84, they attended the World of Life Bible Institute in the U.S. in 1985. Next year, Dave went to Dallas Theological Seminary, where he received his master's in biblical studies. He and his family served with World of Life for 21 years, 16 of them as missionaries in Hungary, where Dave was the founding director of the Bible Institute and later the associate country director. In 2009, I returned to the United States to establish an apologetics and discernment ministry, the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. And as part of his ministry, David continues to teach for Word of Life nationally and internationally, as well as at other schools, churches, and conferences. Besides teaching, he also does much writing and weekly national radio interviews on important theological issues affecting the church. In addition to the Alliance for Biblical Integrity, he works with the Ministry of Prophecy Today, where he administers and teaches in a master's and doctoral level program in advanced eschatological studies. And he's been married to his wife, Karen, since 1980. They have two adult children who are married. Well, that sounds like a pretty good resume, but how did you exactly get into this for people who don't really know you? Well, yeah, it's, uh, as you, as you noted, uh, it's quite a long story that now goes back about 30 years when I first came to Christ in 1984. Um, and being missionaries, uh, well, let me start back, back up. Let me start with this. <clears throat> I went to, to, uh, I went to the Bible Institute, I went to the Bible Institute when I was, uh, 26 years old or 27 years old and first had my exposure to the Word of God. And, uh, Actually, with my testimony, I went from uh, drinking three or four hours every night to after I was saved, reading the Bible for three or four hours every night. Mm-hmm. And I, I started attending a good, solid Bible teaching church, and uh, that just launched me uh, onto this path. I knew within a very short period of time I wanted to be a Bible teacher. 
And then when we arrived in Hungary, we got to Hungary in 1992 to start a Bible Institute. There were several, you know, I had choices of which courses I would teach and, and which uh, my colleagues would teach and which guest teachers would teach. And just the way it came together, I most of my courses were in uh, Bible study methods, hermeneutics, apologetics, and those kinds of ministries. So while I didn't see it coming, the Lord certainly did that uh, after about 16 years when we we felt like we had accomplished what we uh, had gone to Hungary to do, and that was to establish a, uh, a well-known international Bible institute um, that was largely uh, run by uh, Hungarians and uh, had a very strong uh, international staff and student body. We felt like uh, it was time for the next time in our next phase in our ministry. And, um, it's interesting. It goes back down, goes back to 2008. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a, a study that came out, very large study, uh, that uh, was up over 30,000 churchgoers in the United States. And over 9,000 of those were self-identified, uh, born-again evangelical Christians. And of those, about 60% believed that there was uh, another way to Christ, another way to be saved apart from hearing the gospel and placing their trust in Christ. And uh, I just realized that there's some work that really needs to be done to hold the line on conservative biblical uh, evangelicalism, and that kind of launched this whole uh, new project. Uh, I and four other, uh, three other guys started the Alliance for Biblical Integrity, and uh, we've been continuing moving forward with that uh, ever since then. Okay, well, something we also said we should clear up early on in the show is that readers of my blog and hearing me talk about eschatology will say, well, geez, Nick, of course you're going to disagree with a work like the Harbinger. I mean, you're an orthodox preterist, and you don't really interpret prophecy that way, so naturally you're going to disagree. But, David, you and I are pretty much opposites in this, aren't we? Well, it turns out that we are, and it was actually interesting to me that you know we that you that you contacted me and we acted actually ended up doing some correspondence uh, because I would be a futurist, a dispensationalist, uh, a pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalist to to nail it down to to that degree, but uh, and. Uh, and so, yeah, we, in, in many ways, we're on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to our views of the end times. And yet there are certain, uh, in fact, there are a number of things about the, the harbinger uh, that, that have caused us, and essentially the same things that have caused us both to have deep concerns. And the interesting thing is, that Jonathan Kahn himself would also be a, uh, be considered uh, a dispensationalist as far as I, everything that I know about him, he would be a dispensationalist as well. Uh, he may not cross his T's and dot his I's in exactly the same, same place I would, but he and I would be coming from largely the same, uh, eschatological framework. Now, we've brought up the term the harbinger several times, and you just mentioned Jonathan Kahn. There might be some people out there who are kind of wondering, what we're talking about. So what is the Harbinger and who is Jonathan Kahn? Sure. Uh, Jonathan Kahn is uh, an ethnic Jew uh, and uh, he is the pastor of uh, a church, uh, an assembly in uh, Wayne, New Jersey. 
uh, Beth Israel uh, Worship Center, and uh, <clears throat> he he uses the term rabbi, which I prefer not to use, even for a, uh, uh, someone who is ethnically a, a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't think that's a, a term for, for the, for the church today, but that's kind of a side issue. But the point is that he is a, uh, a born again, uh, believer in Jesus Christ who is ethnically a Jew. Uh, and has what would be considered uh, a messianic Jewish congregation. Um, he uh, he wrote this book, The Harbinger. The har- uh, the word, har- in fact, what I found is a lot of people don't even know what the word harbinger means. Understandably, it's not not a word we use every day. Uh, it means a sign or an omen. And the the if we just boil down the very basic premise of this book, The Harbinger, which came out in January of 2012, is that uh, Jonathan Kahn believes that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10, that he has found nine harbingers or signs or omens, that would be what a harbinger means, a sign or an omen, uh, that were uh, directed toward the northern kingdom of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, uh, warning them concerning the impending uh, invasion by the Assyrian Empire, and that would have been in 722 B.C. Now, the reason he wrote this book, The Harbinger, and what it has to do with today is that he believes that he the that the nine harbingers that he believes he has found in Isaiah nine chapter uh, chapter nine verse ten have been replaying on American soil uh, beginning with the terrorist attacks of nine eleven uh, two thousand one with the twin towers and the Pentagon strike and everything that that we that is now a, a, an indelible part of our history. And so he's, he has found what he believes are parallels, in fact, identical parallels in uh, Isaiah 9.10 with what transpired on that day leading up to that day and what has happened since that day. And uh, he has built his book around that uh, with the idea as this being a call to repentance and a warning from God uh, to the nation that uh, we are in we are facing the same judgment that national Israel did back uh, uh, in the face of the Assyrian and Babylonian uh, uh, empires if we do not turn around as a nation and embrace God, if we do not repent as a nation. Now, when I'm looking up Isaiah 19 for those interested, the passage reads, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. So, listeners, keep that in mind as we're going through this, and if you've got your Bible, you can open it up there. Uh, now, there is something that we would agree with Jonathan Cohn on about this, and that is that America is in need of repentance. Of course, I'd say every country in the world is in need of repentance. But you and I are both very concerned about the way America is going. Absolutely, and I've made that very, very clear. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the way I would state it, though, now is that uh, the world is so. The, the, let me put it this way: the religions and the ethnicities and the cultural and the cultures of the world, and especially in the United States are so mixed together, that we are so multicultural, that we're so pluralistic, 
that there, it's, it's virtually impossible to envision any sort of repentance at the national level because it, it, the, the only instance that you have an example that we could even follow would be that of Nineveh in the Old Testament. But that was a monolithic society. They basically had a monolithic, you know, a, a single religion. They all followed this. They had a single culture. Uh, but America is nothing like that. So actually repentance can only come down to the individual personal level and perhaps within certain people groups as you reach them with the gospel. But the idea that a, a, a country like the United States of 300 million people with large percentages of uh, Buddhists, uh, Hindus, Muslims, uh, African faith, uh, African beliefs, uh, all kinds of different cults, all those kinds of different things. I, I, it does, it's not even, I don't think it's even biblically a realistically, uh, realistic expectation to just issue this broad call to repentance, uh, unless you're, unless you're very, very specific. And unfortunately, even the call to repentance and the gospel in the harbinger is really rather muddied, in, in my opinion. In our in opening problem we have of this is, is Jonathan Kahn claiming to be a prophet or not with this? Well, that is that has been a real contention uh, and something that uh, I've dealt with continually. Uh, he actually would claim that he is not a prophet, uh, that uh, although he almost everyone who introduces him introduces the prophet. Now, obviously we understand... You're breaking up a bit there. Okay. Obviously, the the, the scriptures uh, use the word prophet in a couple of different ways. Uh, One has to be with someone who tells the future, and then there's someone who simply uh, proclaims the word of God as it has already been revealed. Right. Now, if he's if he's if he's being referred to as a uh, a prophet who just takes the word of God, the written word of God that we have, and proclaims that, then you know I don't like to to use the word prophet because it comes with too much baggage in today's world. Uh, but I can live with that if you if that's what you mean, someone who's uh, boldly proclaiming the word of God as we have it. But when he's introduced, that's really not what. People mean, and the the problem is that um, even in his messages, and even in his next book it, that we'll probably be talking about a little bit, the mystery of the shemitah, mm-hmm. the, this idea of him, he he sort of set himself up as the revealer of mysteries, things that no pro- Bible teacher has seen for the last two or three thousand years, mm-hmm. and so he's he, he talks about revelations that he's receiving from God. So on the one hand, he denies that he's a prophet. And yet when he's, he's frequently introduced as a prophet, but never clarifies that, uh, the people who use that term mean that he's revealing things from God that, uh, new things from God. And, uh, and you're right. This, this has created a huge amount of confusion over this whole issue. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's get into some of the, uh, warning signs we've seen up. This R starts supposedly at 9-11 with the Twin Towers falling, and one of the first messages we get in the book is that 
the Assyrians who attacked Israel are directly related to the people who attacked us in 9-11, including with the very language of Arabic. And now, if you're reading this and you're not familiar, that sounds awfully interesting and coincidental, as it were. Right. Is that accurate? Right, you're exactly right. It comes off as a coincidence that is beyond something that is that the thing is here's here's what I ran into i I started out I was going to write a two to three page review, just a book review of this book um, a, a friend of mine who uh, uh, who does a, a prophecy ministry uh, uh, the book i read I read it and we discussed it actually the first week that it came out. I had some concerns, so I was going to do a two or three page review. The more I got into it, the more I researched it. ended up being six pages, ten pages, and twenty pages, and forty pages, and it just kept getting more and more as I realized what was happening is, uh, just like you noted there, you read, you read this one sentence, and it takes, it, it literally took me sometimes ten to twenty to thirty hours of research to get to the bottom of some of these things to find out just how true these broad and sweeping statements are. Well, let's take this one for example. And, and, and in fact, in the book The Harbinger, he doesn't make that statement. He simply raises the question. So there's a situation where you know, he can come back and say, well, I didn't say that. I just, I just, I just raised the question. Well, the, you're, you're, you're kind of breaking book up like, a little yeah, in, in a in a book like this, uh, you, when you raise those questions, you're, it's the same as making a statement. Uh, and so here's here's what you have: you have uh, him saying they're the same people as attacked Israel, the Assyrians. Well, the fact is, almost all of the uh, almost all of those who were involved with those hijackings were actually uh, Saudi Arabians. They held Saudi passports. Which is from west south the area of Assyria and Nineveh. So it, it, it just one of those things he threw out there. Sounds good, but in fact has absolutely zero has exactly zero historical uh, fact behind it. You know when you're talking about doing all this research to deal with Winston's, I can't help but think of. So many times if I'm on Facebook or something like that and I see these memes that are put forward by atheists and others, they contain so much misinformation that if I'm going to educate someone on what the real matter of that is, you have to deal with all this hidden back stuff before you can even get to answering what's being said. That's exactly right. You know, just another quick example, and I know we'll get into different ones, but another quick example, um, the, uh, in, in the translate, I'm not sure what translation of the Bible you were using when you quoted that. Which one, what, which? NIV. Uh, NIV, okay. Um, in the, uh, in the New King James and in the King James, uh, and I think, I think he probably used the New King James when he quoted it, uh, where the, where the, uh, where the NIV says, uh, the fig trees are cut down, which is actually a good translation. In fact, the better translation than the New King James, uh, which says the sycamores were cut down. 
Yes. Now, that particular tree that they're talking about is the fig mulberry tree uh, native to Israel and that part of the world. Uh, and so he said there was a match uh, in a tree falling during the terrorist attacks in the in the shadow of the uh, the twin towers that was a sycamore tree. Well, it's a sycamore tree in English, and the King James translators didn't really know what a fig mulberry tree was in Israel, and because the leaves are somewhat similar, they called those sycamores when they translated the, the King James Bible. And so here you have two trees that are botanically completely unrelated, but yet, because there's a, a, a semantic relationship between the two words, that's a sycamore, these are sycamores, oh, here's a, here's a tree that fell down that matches, so this is, this is a match of that. When, when that is really the height of absurdity when it comes to the logic of, of saying this, this constitutes a match. And besides that, we're talking about in Isaiah, these sycamores, and we're talking about whole forests. We're talking about uh, an attacking army laying the land bare. Uh, they were either using them for uh, firewood. They were using them for the purpose of intimidation. They may have been using them to create war, uh, war machines, yeah. um, such as catapults and things like that. Seeds, so right. we're talking about level every, leveling everything. And in New York City, it was one tree that happened to get knocked down by the uh, the debris blast from the falling towers. And that's supposed to be a match. Well, I was just looking up a word here. And yes, in the New King James Version, it does say sycamores. But I went to Blue Layer Bible and looked up a word, word as shakam. And it means a sycamore tree. But it's got parentheses, bearing figs. So, in essence, this would be a, a tree of some sort that bears figs, right? Yes, they're, they're, two, they're, botanically, they're not even remotely similar. Even if you, even if you believed in evolution, uh, they're still not even, they, they don't have a common ancestor. They're absolutely not related at all. So, and the interesting thing, too, if you think about this, that it's in English because that's not what the word is in Hebrew, just like you just said. So even semantically, it's really a, it's a bit of sleight of hand to even try to make that connection. Now, once again, this is one of those cases that if you're not aware of a background and you read that the only tree that fair is a sycamore, and in fact, you read that tree isn't even indigenous to the New England area, and yet as the tree haven't fell down, that, that does look awfully convincing to most people, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And, you know, the problem that we have, uh, again, now that we have a second book coming out, I'm even more concerned because he, so many people are convinced that he made his case so overwhelmingly convincing with the first book that the likelihood of anybody checking him out in the second book is even less, and 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 the, and the fact is, you and I both know. And somebody's reading this book. Who who is even going to go to a concordance? Who's even going to ask 
the question, hmm, I wonder if those really are the same tree. Oh, it says sycamore. There, you and I both know there is not one reader in a thousand who will check out that one detail. And, and the problem is there are hundreds of de- de- details exactly like that, that, that really need to be checked out. And when you do check out, check them out, with with the, the the amount of research that it took, you, what you find is, is the whole thing literally is built. It's a house of cards that literally falls completely down when you start pulling these pieces out. When we're talking about doing this kind of research, I'd like to give people an example of what it, we're talking about. A reader, listeners to this show and readers of my blog know my father-in-law is quite a prominent name in the area of Christian apologetics. And he told me something once about Bart Ehrman. He said, and here's the book where he says this. And I found that claim incredible. I mean, I, I trusted him on, I was sure he said it, but at the same time I said, I want to go and I want to see this for myself. So I got the book, read it, found it, and thought, oh my gosh, he really does say that. And then I was able to say, yep, now when I'm talking to people, I can look and say, yeah, this has been said. I've read it for myself. You can go. You can see it yourself. You know, this is someone I trust greatly in this field, and I still did my fact-checking. And right. I, like I've said on my own blog, check me up on my facts often, because just because someone's a Christian writer, it doesn't mean they're going to get everything right. Right, and and we can make you know as you know you know I don't believe that Jonathan Kahn even was 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 intentionally being deceptive per right. se, but I I would say this I think he got carried away with what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, he I, you know I think he's an honest man, but I also think that he started see, seeing dots and started connecting things and to be honest honestly started grasping for straws and and he grasped for some that and thought he had a hold of something and uh and and he's logically and and biblically he's just wrong and unfortunately you know he's aware of my book he and I have corresponded uh, we've even had a, a, a an extensive uh, debate, and even in the last few days, we've been corresponding fairly frequently. Um, you know, his he doesn't really have a good answer except to say, "Well, the match is there. It's sycamore. It's sycamore," and so he stands he stands behind it. Yeah, I think part of it is it's a danger we all have to watch carefully. If we think we've stumbled on something that's totally new. And no one else has found that can be an awfully good sensation to have. It can be. I when I first when I was the first a student in a Bible college in 1985, uh, one of my one of my theology professors made a statement, and I still remember it 30 years later. He said, "If you come up with a new idea that you think you found in the Bible." Uh, it's probably heretical because because that much time the truth is then well known. Now you may have different nuances and you may have different applications. But the text, the fact, the fact is the text means what it means. 
have been some archaeological advances that help us to give a, a deeper nuance or deeper appreciation, but the fact is the text means what the text says, and it has meant that all along. Now, to be clear, of course, neither one of us is saying that Jonathan Kahn is heretical. With no, this. no, no, yeah. I, no, I'm not saying that at all, no. Yeah, and I, I would say I think there are some times that new discoveries can help enlighten us on what a biblical text means. I think we gained a whole lot of understanding of biblical text, for instance, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls and found what they said at Qumran, and we could look and say, oh, this matches which, sir. Yeah, that could yes. be what we're talking about, Biff. It's just something that you kind of discovered out of the blue about any interaction with what's been found in biblical scholarship. Yeah, be very cautious about it. Very cautious, right. Mm-hmm. And now, from the Sycamore... I think we could also talk then about the political events that followed 9-11. Now, what, what started happening in D.C. after 9-11 that Tom really highlights? Well, I believe it was on the next day or shortly thereafter, uh, Tom Daschle, who I believe was the Speaker of the House at the time, um, he... Uh, he gave a speech to the nation, to Congress and to the nation. And uh, his speech actually picked Isaiah 9.10 to be included in his speech. His speech was going to be comfort from the leadership of the United States to a citizenry that was uh, really rocked back on its heels. I mean... I, rem- I was in Hungary at the time as a missionary. I remember the exact day. I, I know the moment when I found out about it. I mean, I, I, you know, it's all, it's all etched in my memory exactly what happened in the in the hours following that. And we uh, so uh, he was he was uh, talking to a nation. Now here's here's the thing. Um, Jonathan Kahn picks up on this, and he says because Tom Daschle used that verse in his address to the nation that he was actually fulfilling prophecy himself and actually pronouncing judgment upon the United States in defiance just like uh, the defiance that was found in uh, Isaiah 9.10 now to put put into context what's happening in Isaiah 9.10 again uh, the Assyrians are about ready to attack uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, and, uh, you, you broke up again after mentioning the tribes of Israel. Okay, so he, uh, what happened was it, uh, God warned the nation of Israel that there was an attack coming by the Assyrians. And so... Uh, what happened was the people that he was warning were basically saying, God, you can do whatever you want. We're going to rebuild. This isn't going to stop us. That's the essence of Isaiah 9.10. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly the opposite, and it's different than what uh, Tom Daschle meant. Uh, for one thing, Tom Daschle is not a Bible scholar, Secondly, he probably didn't write that speech. Uh, some speechwriter found it, uh, found it, uh, put this in there. And think about this logically. 
if you're going to go to a, a, a concordance or you're going to search the Bible for a passage that talks about uh, buildings being knocked down and uh, by a terrorist attack, you can search the scriptures high and low and basically to, to have a verse that, that sort of matches anywhere close to what happened, you're going to find that it's not like... Uh, a million to one chance you're going to pick that verse. It's almost exactly one to one chance you're going to get that verse because that's the only verse that will say anything even close to what Tom Daschle wanted to say to the people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and he was not, and he was not saying it in defiance of God. He he, he did not put himself in the place of the people in Isaiah nine ten. It wasn't the leaders in Isaiah 9:10. It was the people who were saying this collectively. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jonathan Kahn turned this whole thing on its head, says that you have a leader of a nation who is acting in defiance of God, using the same words that the ancient Israelites did, and was basically shaking his hand, uh, his fist in the face of God. And and then John Edwards also. Uh, quoted the same passage, and probably for the same reason, his speechwriter found the only verse in the Bible that might even come close to somehow dealing with this. And here you have a quote-unquote Christian nation. Where can we find a verse that you know that might somehow apply to this? And then all of a sudden, both John Jonathan Edwards and uh, John Edwards and uh, and Tom Batchel are 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 speaking prophetically. They're speaking prophetically and pronouncing judgment upon the nation using the same words that the people did in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. That is some of the, the most, in my in my view, some of the most outlandish application and suggestion of what actually happened uh, that you could possibly come up with. And yet, it's one of it's one of those statements that are made, and they're made throughout the book, as you pointed out, it's one of those wow factor statements. Yeah, it it just seems like this is too incredible to be a coincidence. Right. And like I said, rather than being, you know, okay, this is, and this is what some pots even put, okay, there's, I I don't remember how many verses there are are in the Bible, 37,000 or something like that. So So the people are saying, just for the sake of argument, here they picked one out of 37,000 verses of the Bible. Well, that, you know, if I know you've heard the saying, I actually use it in my book. If you if you if you torture statistics long enough, you can get them to confess to anything. Mm-hmm. And if you and and if you twist things like this enough, you can squeeze any kind of meaning out of them that you want. But again, the fact is, it's not a matter of one verse out of 37,000. What are the chances of that? The chances are, what are, you have one verse in the entire Bible, and if they're going to find a verse, they have no point to use Isaiah 9.10. So it it wasn't any kind of coincidence at all. If this wasn't anything like, they opened up a biblical website and said, Let's push random Bible verse, and oh, look, it happened to be Isaiah 9:10. And as it was, I've, I've just uh, gone to Bible Gateway, opened up the New King James Version, typed in the word "rebuild," which I think right. would be good for a search. 
I get 13 verses, and indeed Isaiah 9.10 seems to be the only one that really apply in this case. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. So the fact is, if I mean, here you have people, and, and this is not uncommon, politicians are wanting to call them a quote-unquote Christian nation. Whether or not it is a Christian nation is a completely different question. For the purposes of what the politicians were doing, they were thinking, how can we comfort this nation that at least has some... And again, your speechwriter goes trying to find a verse. Find a verse. Find something in the Bible that we can use. What are they going to come up with? They're going to do just what you did, and they're going to come to exactly the same conclusion that you that you just uh, did in just a few seconds. We've got Isaiah nine ten, and that is it. <laughs> now, if anybody does have some questions though about America as a Christian nation, I do recommend you go to the July fifth episode I did this year to honor the fourth of July. Well. Bill Fortenberry came on and talked about the faith of the founding fathers of America. Quite an interesting show, but to get back to what we're discussing here, if anything, this only proves something that shouldn't be a shock to any one of us, but it's a simple fact. Politicians do not make good biblical exegetes. Right, and neither do their speechwriters. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't want to go to politics or most politicians, to see how you should interpret the Bible. And now, something else about this is that the whole idea is that you're taking a vow of defiance, and you're doing it accidentally. Right, exactly. Uh, and it was a... It, it, you know, what happens in Isaiah 9-10, it, it hardly rises to the level of a vow, but even if you even if you grant that it's a vow, mm -hmm. um, still that was not the way it was intended by either uh, Tom Daschle or uh, or John Edwards. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you read the text of their speeches, they were exactly the opposite. Now, whether these men are true born again believers, God knows. That's not that's not my that's not my worry. That's not my concern, unless I have a chance to share the gospel with them. Right. But the the point is is this: the defiance that you find in Isaiah nine ten, which is absolute shaking your fist in the face of God, was not in the heart of either of these men. Mm -hmm. If if anything, they were shaking their fists in the face of terrorists who might who might still be out there and wanting to do the same thing and saying, we're not going to stand for this to happen. We're going to, we're going to come back stronger than ever. It wasn't about God. It, they, it, in fact, even though God should have been on their mind, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that he wasn't. And so what happens is Jonathan Kahn takes this idea and says they unwittingly did it. In the exact, in, in, and he uses the idea of, um, uh, of Herod when, uh, he says that, uh, one man, speaking of Jesus, it's better than one man die for the, uh, die than, you know, the nation be destroyed. The idea uh, being the nation be destroyed by the, by the Romans if there's an uprising. I think you mean Caiaphas, right? I'm sorry, I'm saying, I'm sorry, you're right, Caiaphas. Where Caiaphas, you're exactly right, sorry about that. Uh, where Caiaphas makes this prophetic word, yes, God, God 
turned that his words into a prophecy. He was making a pro, uh, unwittingly prophesying, um, uh, and then but they're and they're saying that Edwards and Dasher were doing the same thing. Mm. But but again, to make that connection is so tenuous, and you have to make so many uh, assumptions that it's. I, I just don't see how you can build a major point in your book on that. It's interesting for someone who's willing to go through and take Isaiah 9, 10, so, and I'd prefer to say literalistically instead of literally, Isaiah 9, 10 nowhere mentions a vow. Right. And in order to have a parallel be accurate, we'd have to have some sort of prophet showing up immediately after 9-11 who could somehow demonstrate that this was a judgment from God. Now, if that had happened, and then everyone says, oh, well, we're not going to repent, we're going to rebuild, well, yeah, then we'd have a parallel, but even if we had that, we still couldn't say Isaiah 9-10 was about us. Right, and, and, you know, the interesting thing about the book, and, and there, there's so many, there's so many branches, it's, it's hard to keep going in a straight line when you're dealing with this book, because one thing brings up another, but the one that you just brought up is this parallel between Israel and America, that's the way he starts out the book, because he starts out talking about the founding fathers, uh, the Puritans, the pilgrims, <coughs> the the fact that they um, uh, intended to establish a new Israel, that uh, it was a nation dedicated to God, that George Washington in his prayer uh, said, you know, basically dedicated the nation to God and said the smiles of heaven would cease if we turn from God, those kinds of things. And then, so he, he lays his foundation, and then he turns around and says, but I'm not saying that America is, is, is a second Israel. And the fact is, he's not a replacement theologian. He is not someone who believes that the church has replaced Israel in God's program. And yet, he, he, he uses, he builds his book by, by laying that idea down, uh, right at the very beginning. It's important to stress again that we do have our different viewpoints on this. I, I wouldn't call my position replacement theology, but more expansion theology, but even I would disagree with America being the new Israel. And uh-huh. something that I was thinking about when you were saying this is, let's suppose that this really did happen, that the Americans at the start did say, we are going to declare that we are the new Israel, we are in a covenant with God. I couldn't help but think of so many people I know who will do something along the lines of, Lord, if you want me to do this, then let X happen. If not, then let Y happen. And then, then what, when something happens, they say, well, see, God is letting me know what to do. And I just always want to say, excuse me, when you were making this declaration of what you want, did God ever agree to your declaration or not? See, that's a, that's a perfect point, and that's a perfect example of the problem with this, and this has been brought up uh, to him in any number of ways, mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter what these people were thinking, and I, and I think their theology in many, in many ways was wrong, uh, but that's beside the point, and it's also beside the point whether they whether they thought they were entering into a covenant with God or not, God has to agree to the terms of the covenant, or you don't have a covenant. Right. <laughs> and and 
and there's there's no way to say that that God accepted a covenant or a vow, even if they wanted to enter into it with Him. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right. Yeah. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that America serves no purpose for God, or that God isn't interested in America. It just means America isn't in a unique position in some way, at least prophetically. Right, but, and of course, no, no one can doubt that America's influence on the world right. for the cause for the cause of Christ uh, has not been unprecedented. Nor can we say that that we haven't experienced an extraordinary blessing of God. And I think it probably is directly proportional to uh, our concern uh, for getting the gospel to the world. And and things are changing, and I think we're seeing some, we're reaping what we sow as we move away from that. But that's far different from ever saying that America was a Christian nation. And we, like, like I said, we, we could, that's a whole other show we could talk about and debate about. Uh, but... Uh, but you can't build your book on that I, on that premise from the very beginning. Yeah, I, I can remember but think that uh, when I look at this kind of situation, I think about how the book of Esther, it's got that great line that if you do not do this now, help will come from another place. And what I would say is if America doesn't fulfill any purposes that God wants us to fulfill, someone else will do it. What I always tell people is that the gospel doesn't need America. If our country fades out of existence tomorrow, the gospel is going to get along just fine. But America needs the gospel. Right, right, right. We we need need to be proclaiming the gospel more than God needs us to be proclaiming the gospel. You're exactly right. Yeah, so there's nothing wrong then, of course, with us looking at this terrorist attack and saying... Yeah, we're going to rebuild anyway, because what we're doing is we're going, we're very saying to a terrorist, you're not going to get us down. Exactly, exactly, right. But at the same time, I always think whenever some sort of natural disaster happens of some sort, I think you'd agree with me on this too, it is good for us to examine ourselves and see, are we doing anything that we need to repent of? This time, and that that would have been a good thing for us to do at nine eleven. And like yes, probably, you're, I, you're right. And yeah. and and there were, and there were hints that it it was that that it might happen. And the fact is, it did happen to a uh, uh, to some degree, and to and and to a limited degree, and for a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. But again. And going back to the fact that we're such a multicultural, pluralistic society, there was no way that it could have ever lasted for very long. I think most of the problem is that most of our country is so self-oriented and present-oriented in many ways that when we get past something that's affected us, well, then we move on. And I think an excellent example is one that I've written about that when... Uh, Phil Robertson was asked to leave Duck Dynasty and A&E started making some horrible decisions there. Christians immediately set up a Facebook page protesting. They started calling their cable companies. They did everything. And A&E felt the backlash and said, okay, we're not going to do this. And so the Christians celebrated. The battle had been won. And with 
winning a great battle against an enemy, they took that great momentum we had and sat down and did absolutely nothing with it. They got right. their show back. That's all that mattered. And it, it just right. irritates me when I see Graf Hart. We had momentum. We had steam there. We could have kept going, and we didn't. Right. You're, yeah, sure. You're, you're exactly right. Absolutely right. And when we talk about repentance, I also say the same thing back that, uh, and I'm sure you agree with this as well, that there are too many times that when, say, a hurricane comes and hits us, we ask immediately, is God judging us? Is God judging? And whenever anyone asks me about it, I always say the same thing. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I can't tell you. But I can tell you, you just need to get your life right anyway. Right, and 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 to 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 take it one uh, to take it one step further is is to say, uh, look, we live in a fallen world, and bad things are going to happen to all kinds of people, and we need to prepare. We need to be spiritually prepared for whatever comes. We don't know if we have the next breath in our lives. The most we can do is be sure. That we're right with God, that we, that we have heard and understood the gospel, that we have trusted in Christ for salvation, believing that He died for our sins and rose from the grave and, 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 uh, and enter into that right relationship with God. And, and then we'll be able to weather those kinds of things, no matter how bad that they might be, because, uh, every year these things are going to happen. They may happen with more frequency. They, and we never know where they're going to happen. Uh, we can't be prepared. We can't even really be prepared as a nation. All we can do is be prepared as individuals. And at the most, we can be prepared as uh, families and as local faith communities in our, in our local churches. Well, let's move on to the next point, Ben, which I think would be economics, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, we can talk about that. And we can also connect this in with the next book that's coming out. But you, you used the term, I believe it was Shimica earlier here. What exactly are you talking about? Okay, the word is uh, Shemitah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, it's a translation, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Uh, so the, a lot of times you'll see it spelled S-H-E-M-I-T-A-H. Uh, but the, uh, the pronunciation is Shemitah. Now, the Shemitah literally means release and what it means uh, is to let something go and particularly to release someone from a debt that uh, they owe you now the way that plays into the to the this whole biblical issue is this uh, as we know God set the Sabbath day as the seventh day of the week and it was to be a day of rest uh, and even when uh, the children of Israel were disobedient and wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, God provided enough manna on the sixth day to carry them through the seventh day so that they wouldn't have to even do the work of gathering the manna. So it was to be set apart and holy. Just as God set apart the seventh day of the week as holy unto him, he also set up the Hebrew calendar such that the seventh year was also a Sabbath year. And what it, that meant in practical terms was the, that uh, the Israelite 
do no planting, no harvesting, uh, no reaping of any kind. The land was to lay fallow uh, during the seventh year. And what happened, just the extra man was on the sixth day. During the sixth year of every every Sabbath cycle, seven-year cycle, in the sixth year, he provided three times the amount of produce uh, that would normally be produced by the land. So he gave a superabundant harvest every sixth year so that they would not have to work the land. And it was to show that this land is God's, and it was to show that they were to be dependent upon God and to trust him because the temptation would be to plant and harvest, even if you had a good harvest this year, well, maybe in two years you won't. So it's a way of showing that you are being faithful to God. Now, on the very last day of that Sabbath year, is the, the last day of the Hebrew month of Elul, uh, which is Elul 29. And on that last day of the year, uh, those, uh, those rich, richer people who had given loans to the poorer people in the community were to release them from their debts. So for every seven years, uh, Everybody who owed a debt was released from their debt, and that's the meaning of the of shemitah. That word "release," they were shemitah or released from their debt. Now, over time, that came to be applied to that whole last day of the year, and then ultimately it became just applied to the entire Sabbath year. So, when you talk about the seventh year in the Hebrew calendar. You're talking about the Sabbath year, and later it just became known as the Shemitah year. Mm-hmm. So the way the way it plays into uh, the book is that uh, there is something that I that is interesting. Cool. Hebrew cow. Okay, you're you're breaking uh-huh. up again. No. Okay. What, what was it you were saying? The way it plays out in the book. Yeah, the the way it plays out in the book is that on well we have the terrorist attack on September 11, uh, 2001. Mm-hmm. The last the last day. Okay, the last day of what? Well, bl- I'm sorry. Okay, we heard that terrorist attack on 2001. The last day of what? Yeah. The Hebrew calendar uh, would have been on our calendar September 17th, and on that day there was a stock market crash. The day after 9/11, or the 9/11, the stock markets closed. They stayed closed for a couple of days. When they reopened the next week, there was a crash. You. Jones uh, Industrial Average. Turns out that was on the last day of the seventh uh, year of the Hebrew cycle. And then, interestingly, in 2008, on exactly the same day on the Hebrew calendar, the uh, the last day of Elul, Elul 29, the market crashed again. This time, once again, the largest point crash in history. Now, it is true, and I have to admit, those are those are interesting facts. 
Mm-hmm. However, the, it, having something that's an interesting fact and having something that is a sign from God are not necessarily the same thing, especially when you manipulate the statistics to make to to make a point that you can't really make. And here's the, here's what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. It is true that in 2001 and in 2008. Those were both the two largest point crashes in history. However, the fact is points mean nothing in terms of how significant a crash is. The only thing that is important is the percentage of the crash compared to the total number, uh, the total value of the stock market. So, for example, uh, back in... Back in what we lost you again. David. Sorry, when we're we seem to be experiencing some technical difficulties, we we are working on it. David. Yes, you still there? Yeah. Okay. You were talking about the significance of a percentage of a crash, and you said back in. And we didn't yes. do anything out of that, so can you start there again? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, lo- I'm losing you t- some, too. Um, th- so the, uh, the, the crash, uh, at the time of the crash of the uh, Great Depression, the value of the stock market was well below a 1,000. Uh, uh, at the time of the stock crash in 2001, it was up over 10,000. So the point crash really means nothing. It's the percentage uh, of the value that it loses that is the only thing that has significance. And the fact is that the crash in 2001 and the 2008, neither one of them are even in the top ten percentage-wise. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this is another instance of sort of fudge. You know, you're saying. Something that is true, yes, these are the largest number uh, point crashes in history, but the other side of it is they're not even in the top ten, so they, it really doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And this is a very example of, of taking statistics and making them say what you want them to say in order to support your theory. Yeah, I should say this also in support of another friend of mine that when you and I started emailing about your response to uh, to Khan's second book that's out already, I did get you in touch with my friend Brent Hardaway, who I know through Tecton Apologetics Ministries, and he's he's provided some interesting material for you, hasn't he? Yes, he has, and uh, what has happened is, uh, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but there is a book, there is a chapter in the first book that is called The Mystery of the Shemitah. So that's what we've just been talking about, the Shemitah. Mm-hmm. And he's expanded that. In, this is actually his third book. He wrote a follow-up to The Harbinger. Uh, so this is actually his third book. It was re- released um, in September. Mm-hmm. It's also called The Mystery of the Shemitah. So he expands on this idea in this chapter in The Harbinger. And he contends that Every seven years, according to the Hebrew calendar, uh, the American stock market has experienced uh, drops 
uh, either right when it happens or shortly after or shortly before. Uh, and uh, your friend has, has pointed out a number of interesting things about that that really confirmed what I was already finding myself, and that is uh, these patterns just aren't there. And in fact, if these, I mean, let's think about this reasonably for a moment. We've got people who are some of the most brilliant economic and financial people in the world who are also some of the richest people in the world. If they thought that they, see, you can make money in a rising market or a falling market. You can even make money in a market crash if you know the crash is coming. You can make tons of money if you know it's coming. So if uh, economists had been able to identify a seven-year cycle that matches the Hebrew calendar, you can be sure that for the last hundred years, people would have been making money hand over fist who, who saw that. And the fact is, economists haven't seen that because it's really not there. And and the things that are in the book that are to try to support that idea, uh, example of manip- manipulation of facts to make them sound like and say something that they're really not saying. Mm-hmm. Now, at, at this point in the show, I'd like to remind everyone that right now, uh, you're listening to David James. We're talking about the book for Harbinger and his response to it. But if you're listening next week, we're going to have one of my friends return. Kurt Jeros of Real Clear Apologetics is going to be back on the show again. We're going to be talking about a number of different topics such as original sin and inerrancy. We got some interesting material that works there. So it's going to be a little bit of a grab bag, but I hope you'll be back here next week. And I can tell you we've got some interesting shows lined up here. We've got some shows coming up on Mormonism. And later this month, we're even going to have a debate on the nature of hell. Still looking for an opponent of the annihilationist view. So if you have some recommendations, let me know. But that's what's going to be going on here. For now, we've got David James here. We're talking about the book, The Harbinger. And we just start talking about the economics of it. Now, part of this also is this idea that somehow America would inevitably be under a sort of Sabbath system, even unknowingly, right? Well, yes, and it it actually goes beyond that. Um, The idea of this Shemitah cycle or Sabbath or seven-year cycle, uh, the way it's being treated in this new book is almost as if it's something that is woven into their fabric of separation. Okay, you said it's tree as if it's, it's woven into what exactly? As if it's woven into the fabric of history or, mm-hmm. or woven into the fabric of creation. Right. Uh, meaning that uh, it can affect any nation at any time and that you can expect that on a seven-year basis there should be identifiable uh, highs and lows that follow this seven-year cycle. There's only one problem with that, and the fact is that that's found nowhere in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even Israel didn't have that happen to them. 
See, Israel's, Israel was to be on this seven-year cycle for the purpose of trusting God. He provided for them. And if they observed it, the, the Shemitah would be a, a blessing to them because they had three times the amount of harvest in the sixth year. There's nothing said in the Old Testament anywhere about God imposing a, a seven-year economic cycle upon even the nation of Israel. But Jonathan Kahn is saying that going back a hundred years, God has been imposing this seven-year uh, Shemitah cycle against the United States. So, for, for one thing, it has zero biblical support. Uh Beyond that, America isn't obligated to the Shemitah, neither is any other nation, because it was explicitly in the Mosaic Law. It was explicitly and exclusively for the nation of Israel. Uh, and the, actually, God let it let things go for hundreds of years until he brought a judgment against Israel. And what happened was that Israel failed to observe that Sabbath year uh, by not planting and reaping for 70 cycles. Mm. And so God sent them into captivity into Babylon to make up for those 70 years. And so the land lay fallow for 70 years while it, Israel was in captivity in Babylon. But mm-hmm. there, is, there is no connection whatsoever between that and what's happening in the United States. And even more than that, because the Shemitah and the Shemitah cycle, uh, Sabbath cycle, was part of the Mosaic law, the law was fulfilled in Christ. Christ said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so to, to think that God is now imposing uh, a, a law that is exclusively in the Old Testament, exclusively in the Mosaic law, upon nations of the world, and especially and specifically the United States, has no biblical precedence, has no theological support, and has and really has no historical uh, basis uh, either. And, and there's one other little factor in here. Uh, Dr. David Reagan, who also deals with uh, prophetics and has... Uh, works with Lamb and Lion Ministries, uh, he had an article a few years ago on the uh, the current Hebrew calendar. And I did some research myself, and in the process of this, found, stumbled across his article. And the fact is that nobody knows if the current Hebrew calendar is in line with the calendar that got, uh, when God gave this law to Moses. In fact, the consensus seems to be that it's off by one to three years. Now, if it's if that is true, then that means that if there's any pattern found, uh, and, and there's very little, it's it's off from what the actual calendar. So it's not even following the Hebrew calendar because the, the modern calendar and the ancient Hebrew calendar through the centuries, got off by one to, one to three years in that seven-year cycle. Mm-hmm. So, there, I mean, the, the, when you start adding all of the problems, it just becomes really quite overwhelming. 
it sounds also like what you're saying is that if this is the kind of system we're following, then we might as well say we're still under a system of a law here in America. Right. So if we're if if we're going to do that, okay, let's just shut everything down every seventh year. Let God give us triple production, triple gross national product in the sixth year, right out the seventh year, and then start things back up in the eighth year. I mean, it's one way or the other. You can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of this boils down to also a question of what role does America play, and there's a very, very tight connection between America and Israel in Collins' book, isn't there? Yes. Well, yes and no. And here's 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 my concern. And this is where you and I may run into some conflict on as far as our eschatology, some different views. Right. Uh, but here, here's what happens. He makes the connection to ancient Israel, but then... Uh, he talks about because Israel didn't uh, observe their uh, the law the, the way the way that they were supposed to, and God imposed the shemitah type judgment upon them, forcing the land to lay fallow for se for seventy years. Uh, he basically uh, brought judgment upon Israel for it to never uh, exist again. And what he's saying is that America is potentially facing the same thing but he says nothing about about uh, uh, modern Israel and and this actually leads us to to a, an even bigger problem I think from from a purely biblical and that is Isaiah 910 does not stand in isolation it stands in the context of the passage where it says that the virgin will be with child and she's going to give birth to him, and uh, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Everlasting Father, uh, Prince of Peace, and he will bring in uh, an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And, and all of that is pointing to, at least in my view, uh, to a future for national Israel. Now, whether we disagree on that or not, I don't know, but the point is this. You can't deal with Isaiah 9:10 without dealing with the preceding verses and and doing something with them one way or the other, and you can't deal with it without de dealing with the following verses one way or another. But he's built an entire book that exclusively is about one verse and says nothing about the context at all anywhere in the book, and that is absolutely against every principle of Bible uh, study that, that there is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that uh, for me, I, I don't really see a future for national Israel from my perspective, but I would say, and we would definitely agree this, that whenever you're doing your interpretation, you have to be as consistent as you can be, and I, I can't but think of, I think it's D.A. Carson's rule that a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Right. Yeah. Right, and and so yeah, so whatever you're going to do with your, however you're going to, you know, defend or expound upon your uh, your eschatological position, however that works out, you can't just take a verse in isolation 
and build a book on it, and especially a verse that was exclusively for Israel, and and and, and take it back to America to, uh, actually 3,000 years later. Mm-hmm. And there, there are so many tie-ins that he has going on in the book that he's got um, King Solomon, for instance, transforming into George Washington. Yeah, that has to be one of the more strange things in the book. Uh, and but on you know on the one hand it's strange, on the other hand it's it's quite troubling. Uh, he uses a literary device, and uh, so this the the main character in the book has this dream, and in the dream he sees uh, Solomon at the temple. And uh, there's a huge wind that comes along, and the and the uh, the temple begins to crumble. And then uh, Solomon is there, uh, and he turns around, and and as he turns around, he he has become George Washington. Now you can call that a literary device all you want, but but anybody who reads that sees that you're saying. That there is a a close, uh, if not identical, parallel between ancient Israel and the United States, mm-hmm. and that George Washington is somehow standing in the same relation to the United States that Solomon stood in relation to uh, ancient Israel and the building of the temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I don't know how far you want to go into this, but with the the Masonic connections with George Washington and the foundation and the founding of the nation, you know, he w- he was sworn in on a on a Masonic Bible by uh, uh, a, a leader in the a grand uh, a Masonic Grandmaster. The procession to the church where he prayed and and was uh, inaugurated was a Masonic procession. Some of the most famous paintings of George Washington are with him in Masonic regalia. He was uh, a master in Alexandria, Alexandria uh, Virginia. He was buried with Masonic ceremonies. And if you have ever been to the Capitol, I haven't, but I've seen the picture in the in the U.S. Capitol building at the uh, up in the dome. There is a painting. And the painting is called the Apotheosis of Washington. And what that means is it's Washington being received into heaven and becoming deity. Now, you can do with what you want about America being a a Christian country and all that. But to draw that parallel uh, between Solomon and Washington and having all of these problems, it has to be one of the most bizarre things that would have been far better left out of the book, to be honest with you. Mhm. You think? Well, you and I will have different views on the nation of Israel today, and who is Israel and who isn't. I think we both definitely have a problem saying America is automatically Israel. I mean, this is a, the same kind of problem I have when, after nine eleven, for instance, so many people turn and say, "Well, look, you've got this passage where it says, if my people, which are called by my name, will turn and repent.'" And I will heal them, and I will heal their land. Where turning and repenting is a good thing, and that's what we should do, but that passage was written to a nation of Israel, and it's not written to us. 
and we're and our nation isn't the nation called by his name. I, I I don't deny that if we live righteously as a nation, we we could quite likely expect to be blessed. I think the Proverbs tell us that righteousness exhausts a nation, and if any nation starts going astray too long, God will judge that nation, but it doesn't mean we're in some covenant relationship. Exactly, and you and I agree completely on that passage in Second Chronicles. Uh, and again, that, that one, uh, one verse does not stand in isolation. And when you take the verses before and after it, if you're going to apply the one verse to the, to the United States, you have to apply it or Sida too. And the context makes it clear that that's absolutely impossible to do historically. Yeah. One of the things that makes this so difficult in the interaction is, frankly, it, it's hard to tell what Khan's viewpoint is on Israel in America, isn't it? Because he seems to say one thing, but he says, no, it's not what I'm saying. It's kind of like a question of, are you claiming to be a prophet or not, right? Right. Exactly. Could, could you expound on Can't that a little bit? It? Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to read the second book or not yet, but in, the, in my uh, article... That, that can be found on my website uh, at biblicalintegrity.org. Uh, what I point out is that he has two chapters in his book, or two sections of chapters in his new book, that, that specifically refer to America as the second Israel. Mm-hmm. So, again, especially especially given the fact that he knew the criticisms that I and others had given. As far as I know, mine is the only book that was written uh, uh, about his... I mentioned this yet. Uh, okay, we, I heard you say your book is the only book you know that's been written about and things cut out again. Okay. Uh, my book on the Harbinger Factor Fiction is the only one that I'm aware of that is... Uh, uh, has been written uh, in uh, as a critique of his book, uh, but his book was the number one Christian book of 2000. This, this is really major stuff. We're not talking about something that's hidden in a corner. This is this is really major stuff. And his, this third book, The Mystery of the Shemitah, which comes out of a chapter of the first book and expands on it, Actually, there are two sections in it that talk specifically about America being the second Israel or the new Israel. So given all of the problems and and all the criticism that he received, the fact is I can't even imagine what he's thinking when he titled those sections that if he's trying to avoid the very thing that he he denied. Hmm. You know, when I was hearing what you talking about, how it became a best-selling book, and how even this second, this third book, is becoming such a great seller, it, it it just depresses me every time I hear it that so many Christians buy the sensational instead of buying things that were really building up. I'd be so thrilled if they go out and buy a good book on, say, defending the resurrection or learning theology or something of that sort. It seems like if Christians do reading, it's usually in the sensational. Well, 
And you know the the problem that we have now, the world that we live in, with with everybody having uh, a voice and everybody being able to publish immediately to a worldwide audience by simply moving his index finger and clicking a mouse button, uh, in order to have your voice be heard above the din of everything that's coming out there, the volumes and volumes that are coming out, the the hundreds of thousands of web pages every day of people with articles and ideas and and everything you can think of. Uh, publishers, I mean, I mean, it's the bottom line. Publishers are going to publish what sells, and right now, what sells uh, the only the only thing that sells much. Uh, are going to be books like this. Uh, if you go to the, your local Christian bookstore and you ask for a book on missions, you'll be lucky to find two or three. Mm. And, yeah, I, uh, I, and I often like to say, you know, I can picture going to a Christian bookstore and saying, can you point me to the apologetics books? Saying, where in the back corner on the third shelf on the far right side, you might find some books with some dust on them. But would you like to see this book on blood moons right here? Right, and and that's and that's assuming they know what you mean when you use the word apologetic. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, I've even written a blog post on the tragedy of Christian bookstores, where it's like every time I go into one, I keep saying, I keep saying I'm not going to do this again, I'm not going to do this again, and I just come out and just, oh my gosh, what's wrong with our country today? Right, right, right. It, it really is difficult to 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 go into a bookstore today. And look at all the marketing of trinkets and stuff on one end, and then all of the marketing of the self-help books and and every heretical type of theology under the sun on the other. And you know the sad part about this is I think that the owners of a lot of these bookstores probably are sincere Christians, and you know you hate to say it, but you just have to say. Why in the world? I, to, to be honest with you, I could not be a, big, a Christian bookstore owner because I couldn't stay in business. Right. Because I would, I wouldn't carry what it would take for me to make money. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, I'd like to remind everyone that we don't do this show to make money, but this show is listener supported. In fact, if you're noticing having some problems, that's just because I'm just a simple guy just using a laptop. To do this show. It's nothing fancy here. And well, our ministry, what we're doing here, we need your financial support. I get no pay whatsoever for the show and I can't pay my guests to come on. They come and give a very free time. But if you want to go and support us, you go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com, which is my blog, and you click the donate button. That will take you to another website. That will take you to Risen Jesus, the ministry of Mike and W. Lacona. And you can make a donation there, and then when you do, you email me, or you email them, and said, hey, I made a donation, I want to go to Nick Peters, I want to go to Deeper Waters, and they will take your donation and make sure that I'm the one who gets it, and it will be tax deductible then, that way, and if you want to be a monthly donor, that would be fantastic, we could use several of you, it, it really helps us out a lot, it blesses us greatly when you see, when we see your Supporting of this ministry and want to donate it and keep it going. Now, also, you can go and you can buy some ebooks. I've got some ebooks out. Um, the latest one, of course, is Defining Inerrancy, which I wrote with my ministry partner. 
you know, clearing clearing up some issues on NLT have come out due to uh, certain voices that seem to speak rather loudly. And there should be another one coming out soon. I've got a manuscript here. I'm just having to check over it for various mails, but that's going to be God and Natural Disasters, an email dialogue I had with an atheist that we decided to publish. And then hopefully in December there's going to be another one out on the Apostles' Creed. So yes, I'm keeping awfully busy here. Then another way you can donate is you can go to the Amazon store that we've got. You can find a link to it from my blog and purchase some books, including a David James's book that we're talking about today. And when you make a purchase on Amazon through there, I'll get a small proceeds of what you purchase. So if you're going to buy the book, which I encourage you to do, why not go that route? And I'd also add, I'd like to have you all be keeping me in your prayers for this upcoming for this month here. Later on in this month, I'm going to be having a debate with Ken Humphreys of JesusNeverExisted.com. It's going to be on Julian Charger's show for Mind Renewed out of the UK. We're going to be debating, was there a historical Jesus on that? I've, I've really been working a lot preparing for this, and I'd appreciate your prayers as I seek to prepare even more. Now, David, I, I've told, talked a lot about how to uh, donate to deeper waters, but you have your own ministry as well, don't you? Um, and if so, uh, how can people donate to it? Yes, well, thanks a lot for bringing that up. Um, the uh, the name of our ministry, once again, is the Alliance for Biblical Integrity dot org. Uh, I have we are not incorporated as a five hundred one c three corporation that was uh, by design we decided for our purposes it would be better not to do that however uh we we have partnered with an organization called uh win international world in need international uh that processes uh all of our finances and we have an advisory board and all that so uh, you can go to our website. It's very easy to remember, biblicalintegrity.org, one word, biblicalintegrity.org. And uh, on the uh, homepage, you will see on the right-hand side uh, a place where it says support the ministry. And uh, you, it, it keeps you on our website, and there's the form that you can fill out. And uh, then it processes all of our funds through uh, Win International and uh you can do it uh, a one-time gift or regular, uh, regularly uh, on a monthly basis. And we also have uh, uh, a lot of, I do a lot of international travel. Uh, I'm, I'm doing 60 to 80,000 air miles a year traveling uh, and teaching. And so there are places that you can give toward uh, that uh, as well. And uh, so that would be a great help. And, uh, and of course, uh, with my book, and I, and, and in fact, uh, with this, uh, second book that Jonathan Kahn has written, uh, I have an article on the website that you can get to from the homepage. It's an in-depth article, uh, that is probably within the next couple of weeks going to be published into a booklet form of probably 50 to 60 pages. We didn't feel like with, with the work that I had done with the Harbinger that a full book response was necessary and uh, that I was able to deal with it sufficiently in a booklet form. But anyway, uh, we, we are also supported by uh, 
by those who uh, are aware of our ministry. We were missionaries in Hungary for 16 years, and uh, when we came back from the field, we lost 80% of our support, even though I'm doing more international teaching in t- terms of hours than I did when I actually was on the uh, living on the field. But but it's just a different it's different being based in the U.S. So if, if you'd like to help, that would be that would be great for us. Now let's go back then a little bit and talk about something that you brought up. weren't sure how much I want to go into, but I think it's worth discussing some, and that's the uh, fact that George Washington, if it, if your research is correct, had a lot of Masonic ties to him. What, what would this have to do with anything? What it has to do with is that, on the one hand, the book starts off at, with America uh, being a nation that is similar to Israel and being in covenant with God. And so then the question naturally becomes, okay, what, uh, with which God did America end up in covenant with? Because if it's, if it's the God of, uh, of the Freemasons, the, uh, the great architect, then in many ways that is really not the God of the Bible. And it doesn't, and the Freemasons don't deal with Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Uh, that in fact, that is not at all a part of their ritual. In fact, I think it may uh, have may be banned from even being discussed. So, so the point being, <clears throat> you have people who were uh, some were deists. Uh, definitely, a number of them had uh, Masonic connections. So when you're talking about America or a nation being founded upon uh, Christian principles and then entering into some sort of covenant relationship with God, uh, how, how is that possible in the context of, uh, of uh, even the pilgrims and Puritans uh, who had some very odd, odd theology at different points? Uh, then you have Freemasons and Deists who, who are founding fathers? Exactly how would how would a covenant with God work out in practical terms? And is it even possible? And were they even thinking and talking in terms of the true God of the Bible as He's revealed Himself? So that that's my concern with it. Yeah, and you know, this is so much worthy of research on someone's well. Again, I, I point you to the show I did. Or discuss it, and when he comes back on the show, we might discuss Masonic questions and such. But uh, I do always get cautious about the Masons. I, my my wife's grandfather was in them for a while, and till he escaped and started exposing some matters about them. Well, my 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 own father was a thirty third degree Mason uh, before he became a believer. So uh, so I've I've got some understanding. I've done quite a bit of research in it. And uh, and again, all you have to do is look at Washington D.C. And uh, if you've done any work, even even if you're not a conspiracy theorist, and the fact is, I'm about as far from being a conspiracy theorist as there is. But the fact is, there are some there are some really uh, obvious things that are going on there, even in the construction of the Capitol, uh, the, the, even the layout of the city that that at least have. Show that there was some significant influence. Yeah. yeah, if someone does want to talk about conspiracy theories, I would point them to 
I did write a blog post on this yesterday, and also my ministry partner has uh, written a book with a very interesting title on that card. Jesus was a mushroom, and other lies you won't believe. Yes, yes, there really was a biblical scholar one time that said that the whole Christian story came about because of a mushroom. Yeah, that's something you kind of have to see to believe. Now, let's get back into a book here. One other thing you have a concern about with Jonathan Kahn is he seems to get into the Zohar, doesn't he? Yes, he he does he does do that. Now, uh, I I and others have taken a, a tremendous amount of heat uh, over this issue, uh, and uh, for those who probably don't know what the Zohar is, it's a uh, it's a uh, rabbinical uh, mystical uh, book. It's mystical uh, uh, in its very nature. Uh, done fairly late in the Middle Ages uh, as a compilation of, of all kinds of writings and, and ideas uh, concerning uh, the uh, concerning the Hebrew Scriptures and the practice of Judaism, and uh, it, it's it's very it, in many ways it's it's an you could even say it's occultic in, in, in a number of ways, and. Uh, my concern was that <clears throat> at one point, John Khan did a message that was actually taken down by his ministry after he took some, uh, uh, some actually some heat for having it up there, but others had already recorded it or brought it down, including myself, so it's still available. And uh, <clears throat> so he, he actually quotes the, the, from the Zohar uh, favorably. Now, to be to be fair, uh, and what others have said in his defense is he was using it as a hostile witness, meaning that even the even the rabbis uh, who were not believers in Jesus Christ uh, made some statements that were true about about God and about Jesus, and so he bring, he brings that into his message. But the reason I bring it up in the book is. The reason I bring it up in the book is because uh, in one chapter he talks about his main character going into a, a rabbinical bookstore, and this bookstore owner has books on Jewish mysticism, and so he incorporates this Jewish mysticism line into his uh, his fictional storyline. Now, that's, an, that's something we haven't really talked about, and that is the fact that the Harbinger is categorized as fiction. Right. However, uh, Jonathan Kahn has said in interviews that it's actually 90% fact. So it's actually simply just using fiction as a vehicle to get his point across. So We, we could make a comparison to say the Da Vinci Code, for instance. Yes, uh, but maybe even more so than that. But you're right; that that would be a, a relatively fair comparison. Uh, that he's using it to get across what he believes are historical facts. So the problem then becomes when you when you weave uh, Jewish mysticism into the storyline of your book. When you weave what the founding fathers uh, believed into the storyline of your book. 
when you weave a dream about King Solomon transforming into George Washington into the fabric of your book, the question then becomes, if you have a fictional book that is mostly fact, how is the reader supposed to know where the the fiction ends and the fact begins or vice versa. Mm. And so it gives the impression that there is actually Jewish mystical influence on the book, uh, in the book. Now he very vehemently denies that and I'm, and, and I'll, I'll take him at his word on that. And others have defended him, even some from who are members of his church and, and, and I'll accept that. But my point is, if you're if you're going to write a book like this, where you're where you're integrate uh, where fact and fiction are so tightly integrated, why would you introduce those kinds of confusing elements if you're trying to get across a true story and try to keep from confusing people? And so this this becomes a philosophical problem that, in my view, that runs through the entire book. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's worth pointing out the way the book is laid out. It does envy fiction, and it is written in a story format per se. The thing is, it's it's all narrative, pretty much for the most part, with the main character talking to someone else who comes to his office and relating this whole experience, which I'd say, if you're reading the book, be prepared, because... I I found it when I was reading. I found it incredibly dry in many parts, and none of the main character was supposed to be a newspaper reporter. I couldn't help but wonder sometimes, does he work at the Daily Planet or what? Because he seems to miss every single thing that's completely obvious that he should be catching on to. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I've uh, I've I've basically tried to stay away from the literary aspect of it. Uh, but just as 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 one comment, I just have to say, from a literary perspective, I, I don't under I don't understand how anybody is giving it five stars. Uh, it it really is from a literary perspective. Uh, I, I personally think a poorly written book, had it not been for what he is claiming are the facts, uh, then then this book would have would have been would wouldn't even have been a blip on on the radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even we were talking about the Da Vinci Code. The movie the Da Vinci Code, boring, boring as can be. The book I, I could find somewhat enjoyable, me aspects of our I'll be the first thing to say, the so-called facts in it are absolute ridiculous nonsense. But insofar as the story, yeah, there, there was some, there was a story there at least. You could kind of get into it, but when I was being the Harbinger, I was just going through and thinking, how many more pages is this chapter? Okay, okay, I think I'm almost done with this one, and it was just a relief when I got through. Yeah, uh, I have read a, you're, you're certainly not alone in that. If you, one of the things I do when I'm evaluating a book and I'm first starting to go through it, and this is something just a, a good practice for your readers, uh, for your listeners, is uh, if you're trying to decide on whether a book is worth reading, go look at all of the five-star uh, reviews, then go look at all of the one-star reviews and see which of the reviews you think you most likely 
fit in in terms of your perspective, your theology, and all that. And that will pretty well tell you where uh, what whether the book is worth reading or not. Yeah, whenever concern you have a book, and this was one I noticed as well, is that there isn't really much mention of Jesus. I mean, when I was going through the book, I didn't really know the author too well, and I saw a rabbi, I was wondering, is this guy a Christian, or is he a Jew, or what? I mean, I mean, I realized, yeah, he's probably a messianic Jew, but it was really hard to tell sometimes. Well, you're absolutely right, and uh, that's one of the things that I brought out. He has a chapter in his book, uh, I think it's called Eternity. Uh, yeah, I, I don't I remember so. for sure. I think I think that's the name of it. But anyway, it's supposed to be a book, uh, I mean a chapter, that deals with the gospel. Uh, I have a corresponding chapter in my book because it took a whole chapter to deal with his whole chapter. Uh, and the fact is, in my view, even though his intention may have been to put the gospel in there and he used a whole chapter to do it, he didn't succeed. Uh, the gospel, in fact, is not in there. Uh, and, and I put the gospel in mine to show how it is missing from his. Uh, the uh, Jesus is very seldom mentioned. He does use Yeshua rather than the word Jesus. So I'll, I'll give him that. Uh, but Okay, you're breaking up again. Uh, I have heard you say okay. that you will give that he uses Yeshua instead of Jesus, which that's fine with me. If, if a messianic person wants to use the term Yeshua, I have no problem with that. Right, right. I have no problem with that either. Uh, but even then, uh, Jesus is mentioned very little. The cross is not mentioned at all except uh, the fact that in the, there's a picture uh, from the ruins of the trade tower buildings where there's sort of a cross left in place from the superstructure as it fell apart. References made to that. There's nothing about uh, uh, really Jesus dying for our sins. The word faith is not in the book at all. Uh, it's an unbeliever who didn't know how to be saved could not know enough from his book on south on, on his chapter uh, on salvation to be saved and this this is a huge problem uh, that, that this isn't in there and it could have and it could have been the church isn't mentioned uh, and it doesn't have to be the, the church per se but if you're going to include a chapter that tells people or supposedly is to tell people how to be saved, then, then you need to put, make the gospel clear. And it's not that hard to do. And he's got a 10 page chapter or so. And to be honest, and I've had others agree with me on this, the gospel simply is not there. Now, we've spent so much time talking about this book and let's start uh, wrapping things up with it a bit here. I mean, coming from a futurist perspective as you are, you and I were talking about this kind of thing before. The show was talking about blood moons and things like that, and how I said too often we see a sort of pin the tail of the Antichrist game going on. What, what's your caution to Christians out there who share your perspective about these kinds of sensational claims? 
Right. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and as we as we mentioned earlier, uh, it seems like everybody has to outdo the the next person in order to get their book to be the next one on the New York Times bestseller list. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a job to do as uh, men and women of God, and that is to be faithful to the Word of God. Uh, to write books that are consistent with the Word of God, to not, <clears throat> we do not interpret Scripture in light of current events. We might see current events and how there are some parallels in Scripture, but unfortunately, far too much biblical interpretation is happening on the basis of current events, and that simply is not the right approach. Uh, there are, there have been too many, uh, I would agree in the dispensational futurist camp who have done that over the years and have embarrassed themselves and, and, and embarrassed and actually, I would say brought reproach, uh, unnecessarily on even the futurist camp. You, you know, you, you and I, I think we have demonstrated over this last hour and a half or two hours that we can have theological discussions recognizing that there are differences but also recognizing that there are there are legitimate uh, approaches to the scriptures that we can all take we may come to some different conclusions and in some cases important different conclusions I would say the, the conclusions that you and I have those differences I, I, it's, I think they make a difference I, I think they're important but at the same time uh, I think there are those in the dispensational camp and in the futurist camp who have done uh, far too much date setting Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they have they have actually hurt the cause of Christ. Right. Uh, they have caused people to uh, turn their back on otherwise good Bible teachers. And the fact is, not every dispensationalist, not every futurist is a uh, is a date setter nor a sensationalist. But we all, as you know, you get grouped into one uh, group. Uh, because of where you come out on your eschatology and people say things that just simply are untrue. You don't believe those things. They're straw men that are created that attack your position. The same thing happens on on my side. And my view is as soon as you start straying from the Word of God into the realm of speculation – you, you have put yourself into a very, very dangerous position. And if you're writing and if you're teaching, even as a Sunday school teacher, uh, teachers receive the greater condemnation and we need, we need to make sure that we got it right and we've got to stay with the Word of God. I, I used to attend a church that was pre-trib, pre-mail and I was very respected in many ways there. In fact, I was put in charge of a curriculum at one point and we were working on it and we were talking about different positions that we'd allow and someone on the, who was working with me said well, how far are we going to go? I mean what if we had someone like say say a preterist working on our material and I just stopped what I was doing and looked and said I'm a preterist and that was a very interesting part but one time the church did say why don't you give a lesson sometime on your worldview, or your perspective, I should say, on eschatology. 
And so what I did, then knowing this was coming, I had about a month prepared. I went to the library of the seminary I was at, got best books I could find on the subject of dispensationalism and preterism, and read through them. And yeah, I was still convinced of my position at the end, but for my listeners and readers out there, I say, go to your libraries, please. Get the best books on these kinds of topics. And watch very carefully what you buy into, because if you buy into something like, say, for blood moons, and it turns out to be false, or what's going to happen then? And above all, don't build, don't build your foundation on this. Your foundation starts with a resurrection of Jesus, and nothing else. Absolutely, uh, we start there. We build out from there. Uh, our, our faith, uh, we know that our faith is true. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection isn't true, then, uh, then we are to be pitied above all men. And so you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and we have to take the, uh, the word of God. I would say that we need to take it correctly in its, uh, and it's literal, it's grammatical, and it's historical context, and, and respect it as as the inspired word of God, uh, and and approach it with uh, with care and respect, and uh, be very careful. You know, one one of the things I tell my people, one of the things I tell people, and I'm actually going to write a book on discernment, the process of discernment, how you walk through that process mm-hmm. when somebody hands you a book or says, here's a, here's a YouTube video or something. Uh, you know, judge a book by its cover. They tell you not to do that. Yes, you can. Look at the title. Look at who endorses it. Look who, look who is printing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the background of the person writing it. Uh, and look at who wrote the forward because the person who wrote the forward has put his ministry on the line and see where you are uh, in, in these things. And now with Amazon, uh, everybody's publishing on Amazon. You can go there and find out a whole lot of information uh, uh, about a book before you ever open it. But mm-hmm. by by all means, be careful and do everything with Bible in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as one who has to deal with nonsense claims on a regular basis, I couldn't agree with that kind of statement more. Our church needs to have good, diligent researchers, and people need to be checking for facts. And one aspect of this I've talked about before is if you're on Facebook, for instance, before you hit that share button about a story, try and make sure it's true because it just embarrasses us all the more when we share information that's false especially when we're supposed to be people of the truth. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. I, you know, I, I've already broken a few people <laughs> over the years of, of uh, being too quick to send links and forward stories, and we get them all the time, these emails that uh, even wonder if uh, some uh, non-Christian uh, wrote, wrote some of this stuff and then just hit send and then stands back and watch watches all of us go crazy over this stuff because we, we're just not careful. Mm-hmm. Well, we've uh, been talking about, about this for nearly a couple of hours, so it's about time we start wrapping things up. Uh, we've pretty much just scratched the surface in many ways. There's a whole lot more 
if uh, someone wants to get in touch with you and find out more about your work, David, where do they go? Sure. Again, the uh, the ministry is the Alliance for Biblical Integrity, and our website biblical is biblicalintegrity.org. That's uh, one word, biblicalintegrity.org. Uh, my email address is at the bottom of that page, and then there's also a contact page. Uh, if they're interested in where we are theologically, there's a very detailed uh, doctrinal statement. Uh, my personal testimony is on there, how I came to Christ. There are a lot of good uh, uh, articles that, that are on there. And uh, I also have a personal and professional uh, commitment that I make that I try to answer every email as soon as it hits my inbox. So if you write to me, uh, uh, you can prom- I promise you that uh, if you do not hear back from me, I didn't get your email for some for some reason. And so I'm, I'm our ministry is to be a resource both uh, uh, at a high level and uh, in terms of being uh, for other uh, apologetics ministries. And I partner with other ministries and for and with uh, academic institutions, but also for anyone, uh, just the average person who picks up a book or somebody says, hey, you ought to read this book, feel free to send me an email. I promise you I'll write you back. And if I don't have the answer, I probably know someone who does or I can find the answer for you. Well, David, it's been great having you on as well. Any final message you would like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? If you want to before and that is uh, don't don't take it for uh, Nick's word don't take it uh, just because Dave says it or any other teacher no matter how respected they are uh, we aren't will never be held accountable for what someone said someone else says but we are accountable for what we believe and we are accountable for what we teach we need to make sure that comes from the word up yeah I, I'm remembering right now how N.T. Wright has said of all the things we teach, we probably get at least one third of them wrong. And, <laughs> yeah. Greg Greg Kokor even said, I know I teach some things that are wrong. And he, he said, well, someone might ask you, why are you teaching them? He said, well, because I don't know what they are. I just know it's a big book, and I'm sure I've got some things wrong in there. And I've been teaching for about 25, over 25 years now, and uh, sometimes I think, what was I thinking when I said that 25 years ago? But it's a process that the Lord and His grace allows us to go through without uh, without hitting some of the, uh, the hammer too often. Although sometimes uh, that doesn't uh, that doesn't hurt to have it happen either. <laughs> well, David, it's been quite enjoyable having you on here to discuss this. It's been wonderful that two of us that disagree on an issue can come together so agreeably here and. I hope we'll see you again here sometime. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to uh, to talk about this. Some very important issues. It goes far beyond the books that we're talking about. It goes it goes down to the Word of God itself. Well, for now, I'm Nick Peters. I'm going to be signing off. I can mind you all next week. Kurt Jowes is going to be here of Real Clear Projects. We're going to be kind of discussing a grab bag from everything from original sin to inerrancy. So I hope we'll see you then. For now.